I invite you to take your Bibles and join me in the book of Acts. We're going to be in Acts 15 this morning. I believe it's 924 in the blue ESV Bible. You can find our sermon on that page if you're using those. Acts 15, we're going to be looking at the first 35 verses. I entitled the sermon, The Jerusalem Council. Pretty original, if you ask me. I just took it straight out of the heading in, in, the, in the Bible. And, uh, and the key words for our worshipers in training are law, grace, and saved. So here in Acts 15, we have come to... Uh, the halfway point in the book of Acts. Technically, we, we passed it last Sunday when we finished Acts 14. There are four, uh, 28 chapters in the book. We're 14 chapters in. And, uh, and so we're, we're halfway through. Since February, we've covered uh, a, lot of, a lot of ground. And we won't rehearse all of it now. In particular, we really just want to think about the most immediate context of this. Because there's a a, a very significant issue that arises here in Acts 15 that we need to, to understand what it was that gave rise to it. And so last week we saw Paul and Barnabas return to Syrian Antioch after their first missionary journey. There they, they shared with the church in Antioch how God had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And the chapter ends with Luke telling us that they they remained no little time with the disciples there in Syria. Now, it's worth noting the significance of the way that Luke summarizes their report regarding the Gentiles. Remember, despite Old Testament prophecies and despite the ministry of Jesus on the earth, prior to Acts 10 and 11, there was really no functional expectation for most that Jews and Gentiles would ever be on the same religious page. Now this is partly due to something like ethnocentrism on both sides, but it also has a lot to do with the fact that the Old Testament itself had laws and regulations that specifically and intentionally separated out the children of Abraham from the peoples that lived around them until the time of the Messiah, the seed of the woman, the seed of Abraham, the son of David, until he would come and crush the serpent's head as had been promised all the way back in Genesis 3.15. Well, at this point, the true Israelite had come and conquered. Jesus was born. He had fulfilled the law in his life. He had suffered its penalty for his people in his death. And he had risen from the dead triumphant and ascended into heaven as the victorious royal God-man now to reign forever over all nations. And so through his church, he has been extending his kingdom. And, and so there, there no longer needs to be any kind of dividing wall or any kind of barrier between Abraham's offspring and the rest of the world. Jesus came to bring the blessing of Abraham to all the families of the earth. And so God formally includes Gentiles in the covenant community of faith through 
the Apostle Peter in Acts 10 and 11. And we, we saw that many weeks ago. And then last week, or really the last, few time, the last few weeks in Acts 13 and 14, we've seen him bringing in Gentiles into the covenant community in droves through Paul and Barnabas. And so it's this, just this large numbered inclusion of Gentiles into the people of God that bring about the events of Acts 15. The first 35 verses of Acts 15 deal with this issue. What does it mean to be saved? Or to put it a little differently, what does it mean to be a part of the people of God? And so you and I today in 2023 are not really wrestling, I assume, with all of the Jew-Gentile issues that the early church was. And yet, because the the heart of this question that arises here regards how, what does it mean to be saved, regards the, the, the nature of salvation, it is a marvelously instructive chapter for us in our day. And so I want to read this chapter. Not the whole thing. We're just, we'll stop at verse 35. But I want to read these verses here. Then we will outline them and get to work in Acts 15. Verse 1, we read this. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others who were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as He did to us. And He made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they, re- after they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for His own name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree 
just as it is written. After this, I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but we should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brothers, with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are, in, who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and uh, Cilicia. Greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual morality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to whom they had, who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. There are three things that I want you to see with me from this text this morning. First, in verses 1 through 5, we're going to see the disturbance that had arisen in the church at Antioch. We're going to see the disturbance that had arisen at the church in Antioch in verses 1 through 5. Second, in verses 6 through 21, we'll see the apostles' deliberation over how to answer it. We'll see the deliberation over how to answer it in verses 6 through 21, and then Third, 22 through 35, we will see a delegation dispatched with the official decision from Jerusalem. How's that for some, for some alliteration? So we have a disturbance, we have a deliberation, and we have a dispatch. And those will be our, our three main headings as we work through this passage this morning. Look with me in the first place then, verses 1 through 5, where we see the disturbance that Luke presents to us. He tells us that some men had come down from Judea to Antioch and they began to teach the brothers that circumcision was necessary in order to be saved. And according to verse 2, this results 
in no small dissension and debate between them and Barnabas and Paul. And so it seems that there's no significant conclusion reached during this time. And so Paul and Barnabas, uh, with some others who were appointed, they, they, they head up to Jerusalem to ask the apostles and the elders at the church in Jerusalem about this issue. And as they journeyed there, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, and Samaria uh, encouraging the saints there. You remember that the Samaritans were considered half breeds by many. They, were, they had Jewish and Gentile backgrounds. Phoenicians were largely had a similar, uh, similar backgrounds, Gentile uh, heritage. And, and so they're, they're encouraging these brothers with the news of what God had been doing among the Gentiles. And so finally they get to Jerusalem and we see the severity of the problem. Because while the church in Jerusalem, we're told, welcomed them with the apostles and elders, and the church as a whole, it seems, many of them were, they would have been drinking up the word that Paul and Barnabas had to share about what God had been doing. Some believers, we're told, who had belonged to the party of the Pharisees, they were, they were saying that, they were doubling down on what the argument had been before. That unless you are circumcised, you must be saved. And they, they make plain, it's not just circumcision, but the whole hog, that all of cultural Judaism must be kept. You must keep the whole law in order to be saved. And that must be forced upon these new Gentile believers. They must become cultural Jews in order to be saved was the argument. And we cannot stress the significance of this point too much. The significance of this debate, of this argument. The the issue facing the church here in Acts 15 hits squarely at the heart of the gospel. Right? The central marking feature of belonging to the covenant community in the Old Testament was circumcision. And now, in Acts 15, the question is being squarely asked, do, does everyone have, still have to be circumcised? Do all males, in order to be a part of this covenant community, still have to be circumcised? And by extension, keep the whole Mosaic law. And it's interesting. What, what does Luke call these, these people who are asking this question or rather asserting this argument? He says they are believers in verse 5. He doesn't call them miscreants. He doesn't call them scoundrels or rogues. He says, these believers were insisting on this point. Think about it. For for 2,000 years, the people of God had been marked out of and marked out from the pagan nations of the world by this act of circumcision and by the Mosaic Law. As I just said, it was the defining central feature of one's conversion to Judaism. Or one's upbringing in, in it. Circumcision would not and should not have been an easy thing to dismiss. 
it, with the Mosaic Law as a whole, some abrogation of it would upend the social, cultural, and spiritual expectations of an entire nation. But it is also important, as we understand this, this language this, of this problem with these believers who are raising this question, we need to appreciate when this debate is occurring. Things are still very early in the church. Much is still very unclear. Paul himself has to go up to Jerusalem, or at least is willing to go up to Jerusalem for answers. If you think about the, when this is, is happening, the Jerusalem council could have been any time around maybe 50 A.D. And so very little of the New Testament has even been written at this point, if any. We're talking, we're 15, maybe 20 years past the resurrection. Now, I know what we're thinking in 2023, like something that happened 15 years ago. Like, that's such a long time. How does everybody not know about what happened 15 years ago? News didn't travel quite as fast. Right? We, 15 minutes ago is sort of a long time for us. But 15 years for them would not have, have been all that much time. And so could someone be a believer at this point and genuinely misunderstand this crucial aspect of what it means for Gentiles and Jews to be in the same covenant community of faith? Well, apparently so. But however exactly we take it, one thing that is certain is that we want to be thankful for the grace of God and for the wisdom of the apostles. Because this is a very significant issue that is going to change the entire trajectory of church history. So that's the first thing. The first point is this disturbance that has arisen over this question of law-keeping. Must you keep the law in order to be saved? Here's the deliberation, verses 6 through 21. We see in verse 6 that the apostles and the elders of the church in Jerusalem gathered together to consider the matter. And they engaged in a lengthy debate. But Luke tells us essentially nothing about the contents of this debate until the conclusion. After there had been much debate already, Peter stands up. And so we get just the conclusion of this deliberation. And there's three parts to it. Verses 7 through 11, we have Peter's argument, which you can call the apostolic argument. You have verse 12, which is Paul and Barnabas giving their uh, report of what God had done through them. And then in verses 13 through 21... James speaks, which is uh, much more of what you could call a scriptural argument. So we'll look at each of these in turn. First, Peter. Peter stands up and he says that God had used him, Peter, to tell the Gentiles, remember those at Cornelius' house, to tell them the word of the gospel in order that they would believe. He said God had borne witness to them by giving those Gentiles the same Holy Spirit that he had given to the Jewish believers back in Acts 2 on the day of Pentecost. And he says that faith was the same instrument for both Jews and Gentiles by which their hearts had been cleansed before God. The point being that God, in the, the Acts 10 and 11 episode with Cornelius and the Gentiles there, God was making it clear 
He was no longer distinguishing between Jews and Gentiles. There is no distinction. Gentile hearts, like Jewish hearts, are cleansed by faith, must be cleansed by faith, can only be cleansed by faith, period, full stop. And so he goes on and he asks this question. He says, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? The law was never intended to give life. It was impossible that it could do so. The law, as a means to life, proved to be an unbearable yoke that could only bring death. And it wasn't that the law was bad, but that the sinful nature of the people used the law to kill them. The law had a specific purpose. And to view it as a means and a way to life was a problem. Because the the problem is that sinful people cannot do what the law requires. It's an unbearable yoke, and so we die. The law sounds one note. You remember what happened in John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress? What happened when faithful had wanted to turn out of the way, turn to the town of deceit? Moses, as representative of the law, he he rushes up to him, he overtakes him, and he beats him mercilessly because of his secret inclining to Adam the first. Again and again, Moses beats faithful until he begins to cry for mercy. How does Moses respond? I know not how to show mercy. And with that, he knocked him down again. Peter's point is that the Jewish believers with whom they were debating, they were defying God. They were placing the same yoke on these new Gentile disciples that God had gone to great lengths to show them all throughout His interactions with Old Testament Israel to show them was impossible. It had been made explicitly clear in the coming of Christ. Keeping the law of Moses could not and would not ever for a sinful people be a legitimate, actual, possible means of salvation. And again, back to faithful. What does he say? He says, Moses would have killed me except that one came by with holes in his hands and his side and bid him forbear. Right? If we extend Faithful's experience to the council at Jerusalem here, we see plainly the truth of Peter's conclusion. The law is an unyielding, unbearable yoke. It is through the grace of the Lord Jesus alone that we may be saved, whether Jew or Gentile. So that's Peter. Next, we see Paul and Barnabas speaking to the assembly, which had been essentially silenced by Peter. But they continue on listening intently. And Luke doesn't tell us what they said other than that they related what God had been doing to them among the Gentiles. 
perhaps a rather merciful omission since he had just told us all about it in chapters 13 and 14. And the gist, surely, of what they communicated here in 1512 is the same thing that Luke had written in 1427. God had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. Not a door of law-keeping, but a door of faith. So we have Peter and his argument. We have Paul and Barnabas. And there's and now we come to James. A third and final part of this conclusion to this long deliberation. James was the one of, if not the leader at the church in Jerusalem. And so it's fitting that he would get the last word here. He summarizes the apostolic argument for Peter, whom he calls um, by his other name, Simeon. And he makes then, having summarized that, a scriptural argument, quoting from Amos chapter 9, verses 11 and 12. The context of Amos, Amos 9, is relatively straightforward. God had promised to destroy Jerusalem, which he did during the invasion of the Babylonians in 586 B.C. And yet, beyond that, there was a promise that at a time after this destruction, he would rebuild the tent of David. Which, if you were here when we were going through Acts 1 and 2, we saw that plainly we are to understand that this occurs in the resurrection, in the ascension of Christ. He rebuilds the tent of David. And he does this in order to bring in a remnant from all the earth. As he had called Israel out of the nations, a people for his own name, now he calls Gentiles out of all nations, a people for his own name. And his point is this. This shouldn't surprise us. James says, what is happening in our midst Brothers, shouldn't surprise us. The prophets have been telling us this for hundreds and hundreds of years. What is the holdup? He says, let them in. And then he renders a verdict. Let us not trouble the brothers. And it would be great in one sense, nice and easy, if that's where he left it. Don't trouble the brothers. Send them a letter. Grace and peace. But he doesn't end there. He goes on and he says some things that, frankly, are confusing. A little hard to deal with. A little debated. He says, Make sure also to tell them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, and from what has been strangled, and from blood. And then he adds... This line, for from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him. For as he, he's read in every Sabbath in the synagogues. And there's no real easy, exact, clear-cut way to describe what he's doing here. So, I'll mention two options very briefly. I'm not going to defend them because I don't hold them, and I'll I'll explain a third one a bit more. Some have tied these prohibitions that he adds to Leviticus 17 and 18. Part of the problem is that not all of these prohibitions are found there. 
and even the one about sexual morality seems very general here as opposed to the prohibitions against incest and such things in Leviticus 18 seem too specific. And so, but that's one potential option that people have seen. Another is that the, the apostolic commands here are specific to the Antioch situation. That they're merely encouraging peaceful living between the Jews and Gentiles in the church at Syria and Antioch. And, and yet, a, a, an issue there perhaps is that it, the commands seem to be too general. They, or they seem to be too general to apply so specifically to one church uh, there in Antioch. And so while each of those views have a certain degree of appeal to them, uh, and if that's your take and view, I'm certainly not going to be mad at you, uh, a third approach that I find more convincing is this that these are practices related a bit more generally to pagan temple idolatry, which James wants to make sure that the Gentiles understand they must put off. This counsel then, and the conclusion that James reaches and that they communicate in this letter, it clarifies two issues related to how Gentiles are to be saved. First, they've been making the point at length Gentiles do not have to become Jews in order to be saved. In fact, salvation for both Jews and Gentiles is always, then and now, through the grace of Jesus, not through keeping the Mosaic Law. And a second issue is that while Gentiles don't have to become Jews, those Gentiles, especially of the day, not just at Antioch, they cannot remain pagan idolaters either. And this helps us to understand the statement of 1521. And so, Alan Thompson, in, uh, in his book on the, the acts of the, 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 the resurrected Christ, um, he helps on this point. He summarizes it, but I'm not going to give you the exact quote from him. I'm, this is my summary of his summary of what's going on in this passage. Since God has given the Gentiles the same spirit that he gave the Jews, while they should, of course, be urged to repent of pagan idolatry, it should not be more difficult, it should not be made more difficult for them to turn to God by an imposition of the yoke of law-keeping upon them, since neither our fathers nor we, meaning the Jews, could bear it. After all, it's hard enough in the synagogues for them that have been established in every city where Moses is read every Sabbath. And so this view, this perspective, makes the most sense of why these four commands, uh, these four requirements that James gives, why they're here grouped together. Why there's an emphasis on the decision of the apostles and elders, not the Mosaic Law. He doesn't quote... He doesn't even make clear that he's talking about any kind of law. He doesn't say, as it's written. He doesn't say anything like that. It seems to be something that he's saying, but it's not a suggestion either. He names it as a requirement. So why are they grouped together? Why these things? Is not murder wrong or theft? Why doesn't he mention those things? Why does he mention these? It's because they were particularly relevant to cult practices of pagan temple idolatry. 
So why are they grouped together? Why is there an emphasis on the elders and the, the apostles and not the law? Why are the decrees applicable to pagan idolatry in general and not just the situation in Antioch? And why are they presented as requirements and not merely suggestions? And so that seems to be the best sense of what's happening here. But however exactly you take it, at some level this is how we can sum up this deliberation. The essence of their conclusion is this. Jews and Gentiles cannot be saved by keeping the law. They must both be saved by the grace of the Lord Jesus through faith. And it's evident at this point in history that God is making this clear, that God is doing this work because of three things. One, He gives the Jews and Gentiles the same Spirit. He empowered Paul and Barnabas to perform signs and wonders in their ministry to Gentiles. And three, the prophets had foretold that this was to happen. God had rebuilt and restored the Davidic throne and is bringing Jews and Gentiles alike into His kingdom. The law, therefore, should not be imposed upon Gentiles coming to faith. However, they should give up their pagan practices of temple idolatry. And so that's the deliberation. What about the, the decision, the, the dispatch with this letter sent in verses 22 through 35? We see our third and final point here. Luke writes that, again, we see this, it seemed good to the apostles, the elders, and the whole church to send some men back with Paul and Barnabas and this letter. And so they choose Judas, uh, called Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men at the church there in Jerusalem. And they send a letter which reiterates the conclusion that had been reached by James. And so we won't go through the letter here, really. It's essentially aims at answering the question and providing encouragement. And we've talked about how it answers the question. Here, I want to think about the encouragement that it offers. When it was read, there was great encouragement. Verse 31. And after it's read, Silas and Judas remained for a while. They encouraged the saints, and then eventually they returned to Jerusalem. And then Paul and Barnabas remain as well, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. A major point to be drawn here from these verses is just how eager the church in Jerusalem was to encourage the saints at Antioch. They weren't eager to cast down heavy-handed rules and regulations upon these brothers and sisters. They had great concern for their fellow saints. The church in Antioch was troubled by these Discussions, and so they wanted to encourage them by the hands of their beloved Paul and Barnabas. Men, they said, have risked their lives for the name of Christ. And to double down on this desire, they send with them two of their best, as it were, Judas and Silas, who not just deliver the letter and leave, but they offer encouragement 
and strengthen the brothers with many words. And so in closing here, then, I want to make three brief points of application. The first, what are you trusting in? Is it the grace of the Lord Jesus? Or is it your own righteousness before the law? What is it that's going to save you? The obedience of Christ or your own? Put another way, what law-keeping is it that you assume you must do or that others must do in order to be saved, in order to be made right with God, in order to belong? I pray that whatever that is for each of us, whatever tempts us, that we would look away, that we would look with simple faith to the Lord Jesus And that we would have our hearts washed clean by His grace alone. But a second question, a second point of application here is this. Do you think that grace means lawlessness? Right. This is the other side of the coin. Notice that James and the apostles don't say simply, hey, be free. There are no rules. Come to Christ and cast off all restraint in any and every manner of speaking. It's not that there are rules for how to earn favor with God. And yet, if we belong to the family of God, there are certain things, they say, that you should avoid these things to keep from being out of step with the family of God. And so these, the suggestion that they make, don't trouble the brothers. Here are a few things that they're going to be struggling with as Gentiles coming into faith that they need to be made aware of. It helps us see the two sides of the coin. Believe and repent. Turn to Jesus and turn away from your sins. So those are two questions. What are you trusting in? And does grace mean lawlessness to you? Because it doesn't for the apostles. But a third question from this last, these last few verses is this. Do you love the people of God? Are you eager to encourage your brothers and sisters with the words of the Bible? Are you eager to see them rejoicing in the truth? Are you eager to see them free from error? Theological debate is intensely personal for the apostles, intensely personal for the elders in Jerusalem, intensely personal for Paul and Barnabas. And so let us see that ourselves, that when we are discussing theology, when we're discussing our doctrine, our points of belief that we remember that we're touching the hearts of actual people. We don't want to forsake doctrine for the sake of people, but we don't want to forsake people for the sake of doctrine either. We want to hold them both together and we want to communicate to each other in such a way that serves to encourage one another in the gospel. 
and in obedient living unto Jesus. And so I want to invite you to commit yourself with me to these three things. Trust fully in Jesus for your salvation. Cast off the works of darkness as His people. And encourage one another with the words of the Bible every chance that you get.